Welcome to Full Stack Joe, your average software engineering podcast, hosted by me, Sean Liga. This is the first episode in 2021, and today I want to talk about web components, their history, their philosophy, popular use cases, and more. I really hope you find it useful. Enjoy. Since the first days of the web, developers thought in terms of web pages. A page was the basic unit that encapsulated styles, structure, and functionality. But this frame of thinking became very limiting for modern web applications. The limitation was especially severe when the applications on the web became large and more complex. In short, thinking in terms of pages was neither scalable nor maintainable. To address these challenges on the web, a slow shift started to emerge. Instead of thinking about pages being the single unit of encapsulation, engineers started looking for smaller units that could encapsulate styles, structure, and functionality. Let me start with an oversimplified example, just to make this a little bit less theoretical. If you look at the Gmail page, for example, it seems pretty complex. If you open up your browser DevTools and inspect the source HTML of the Gmail page, you will probably see endless hierarchies of very basic HTML elements, like divs and spans. Those basic elements don't provide any semantic meaning to you. Try looking at that source HTML and match which div represent what part of the actual page. It is very challenging. Actually, it feels kind of similar to looking at binary code instead of looking at the higher level languages like Python or JavaScript. Now, of course, browser users are not the audience for that HTML code, and perhaps they shouldn't even care about it. But the structure of the Gmail page tells us something about the challenges faced by the development team that had to build and maintain it. Obviously, the page is way too complex for one small team of engineers to maintain. And as mentioned before, scaling such a complex project is challenging when thinking in terms of a single page as a unit of encapsulation. Web components tackle exactly those issues. With web components, instead of thinking in terms of pages as the basic unit of encapsulation, developers can think in terms of a component that encapsulates styles, structure, and functionality. Just imagine that instead of opening the Gmail source HTML and seeing hundreds of nested divs, we would instead see semantic HTML tags like Hangouts Chat or Mail Search Box. Additionally, the development team that would build that Mail Search Box component wouldn't have to worry about any external CSS or JavaScript conflicts. To better understand where it all began, we need to take a walk down memory lane and travel almost a decade back to the year 2011. In 2011, libraries like jQuery were at their peak, and large-scale front-end development was way less fun than it is today. Certainly for large and more complex projects. Just to give you some perspective, in the year 2011, frameworks like React or Vue didn't even exist. Actually, 2011 was two whole years before the initial release of React. 
and less than a year since the initial attempt of AngularJS that was of course deprecated pretty quickly in favor of the full rewrite. In 2011, a Google engineer named Alex Russell gave an interesting tech talk at the annual Frontiers conference, a web development conference in Amsterdam. In his talk, Alex challenged the level of expressiveness we get from HTML. Remember that Gmail page from earlier? Again, what does it even mean for HTML to be expressive? Let's look at another quick example. When a developer wants to represent a link on a web page, we have a native HTML representation for that, an HTML anchor tag. You don't need any third-party framework to use anchor elements as all browsers support them. They are in the official standard after all. It is very easy to discount the amount of complexity that is encapsulated in every anchor tag, like URL parsing, interaction with the browser's context and document, and ton of other logic that is exposed to us with a single, simple HTML anchor tag. Let's go back to the 2011 talk. Alex made an argument that even though we have clever HTML abstractions like the anchor tag, we can and should take it one step further and let developers extend and enhance the HTML language. After all, Alex said, if developers want to introduce their own HTML elements that abstract styles, structure, and complex functionality, they should be able to do so via a native browser API that is supported by all browsers without the need for any third-party framework. He called this proposal Web Components. What Alex was basically saying was that if you want a special HTML tag named Beautiful Date Picker, then you should be able to express such a tag in your native HTML language, just like you would express a simple button or a link. To achieve this vision, Alex proposed a number of new browser features, or more precisely specifications, and called them web components. We will get back to the specifications, but first, we need to talk about the elephant in the room. Alright, so we know what Alex proposed in 2011. But all this web expressiveness and custom components jabber probably sounds just a little too familiar to you, doesn't it? Well, here is why. Facebook engineers didn't wait for Alex's vision and ideas to become browser standards. After all, creating a standard takes years. So Facebook engineers decided not to wait, and instead they built their own library called, well, you probably guessed it by now, React.js, a JavaScript library that would achieve similar componentization and expressiveness for HTML. Now, I don't actually know if React engineers actually based React on the web components proposal that was brewing up at Google at the time, but I believe that at the minimum, they were aware of the Google's initiative. React was released in 2013, roughly two years after Alex Russell presented Google's work on web components in Amsterdam. React was no less than a revolution, a robust component approach that made the web more expressive and scalable. But there was a catch. Actually, there were several important quote-unquote catches I should mention. First, by choosing React as a UI framework for your project, you pretty much lock yourself into that one framework, and by proxy, of course, to Facebook as a vendor. Of course, in many cases, this is not a problem. 
and developers happily accept the lock-in in favor of a huge benefit and development experience they get from React as a UI framework. Another disadvantage of React, or any other similar framework for that matter, is that your project has to always include the framework source code. After all, the browser doesn't really know anything about React, and so it always requires the framework to be downloaded to make your application work. And finally, in my opinion, the biggest disadvantage of React is that it actually breaks JavaScript. Almost all React projects rely on multiple external tools like Babel, Webpack, Node.js, and others. I mean, technically you could use pure JavaScript to build React components, but that would get very much unmanageable. Again, all these disadvantages are a very small price to pay for many projects. However, in some cases, these disadvantages are a deal-breaker. Let's say you want to distribute a set of reusable components to multiple teams in your organization. That would mean that your components would have to rely on React, and all the client teams that use your components must use React as well. And you all have to agree on the versioning scheme, which is an issue of itself. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to bash React. It is one of my most favorite tools when it comes to front-end development. I'm just trying to put things in perspective. So, are web components any different then? Since web components are native specifications, meaning they are supported by browsers themselves instead of third-party frameworks. And an interoperability is a given out of the box with any version of any framework. There is no vendor locking, of course, from the same reason as web components are supported natively by all major browsers. And you can use standard JavaScript to create your components. No bubble, no extra processing tools is required. I know I may get angry emails for saying that, but if you are new to web components, then you can think of them roughly as native version of React. I think if React would be released after the full support of web components by all browsers, React wouldn't be as popular and widespread as it is today. In a way, the early release and stellar adoption of React was the tragedy of the web components adoption story in its early years. I mean, why do you even need those web components if you have React, right? So now that we put the story of web components in its historical and comparative perspective, let's talk a little bit about the specification itself. While React was taking the web world by storm, Google released their first implementation of custom HTML elements API for the Chrome web browser in 2014. But that implementation had issues. The main one was that no other browser vendor would agree to support that same API like Chrome did. So basically, web components only worked on Chrome. Ironically, today in the year 2021, some developers still think of that deprecated Chrome-only API when they hear the mentioning of web components. Anyways, to get other browser vendors to agree on the spec, Google engineers went back to the drawing board and were hard at work to turn their native idea for an expressive web, the web components, into a web standard that is agreed upon by all browser vendors. Now, if you're not familiar with web standards, this is where all the big browser vendors like Google, Microsoft, and Apple would have to sit in a room and agree on these new features and eventually agree to implement them in their own browsers. Remember Alex Russell? 
So here is the web standards tech lead that represents Google and the Chrome browser in these discussions. Eventually, all companies agreed to one specification. Google then deprecated their initial implementation and called it V0. The agreed upon Web Components standard became what's known today as Web Components V1, and its first implementation was released in Google Chrome in 2016. Important to note that as of today, in 2021, the Web Components V1 standard is stable and is supported by all major browsers. Now, to be precise, there is no one single Web Components standard. In fact, these are three individual standards for individual browser features. So why are they known as Web Components then? Well, that is because the main use of these browser features is to create isolated, custom HTML elements on the web known as Web Components. There is only a small number of specialized use cases where any of these features would be used separately from one another. The three individual specs are Custom Elements API, the Shadow DOM API, and HTML Templates API. Let's take a high-level look at the main two specs that should be enough to have a solid mental model of Web Components APIs. All right, so what is the Custom Elements API? This API lets us register custom HTML tags in the browser. In other words, this is the API that we use to extend the browser's HTML vocabulary with new tags. If you want to try that API yourself, then open up your browser's DevTools and type customElements.define, and you'll get the sense of what this API looks like. Remember the V0 API that Google deprecated because no other browser would support it? So the customElements.define function replaced the now deprecated function called document.registerElement. The name has changed, but the idea and concept basically stayed the same. Now, if you just use that one specification to create a custom HTML tag, that won't give you much of a benefit. And this is exactly why the specs are much more powerful when used together with one another. Enters the Shadow DOM, which is the second uh, important specification to understand. The Shadow DOM API lets us render that custom HTML element we created earlier inside of an invisible DOM tree. That DOM tree is invisible because the CSS from the outside scope won't cascade inside of that subtree and the styles of that subtree won't escape to the outer scope. You can create a shadow DOM in two modes, open or closed. If you use the closed mode, that means that the JavaScript from the outside scope can find or manipulate the shadow DOM HTML elements. To visualize this, think about the HTML native video player tag. When you look in your HTML, you only see the video tag and all the internal structure and functionality that, like buttons and sliders, are hidden from you, and you can't really manipulate them with your own JavaScript. The only remaining question is, how or where do you attach that Shadow DOM? Well, you can choose any normal DOM element on your page and use JavaScript to invoke a function on the DOM element called attach shadow. Every DOM element supports the attach shadow function and lets you attach a shadow DOM to it. 
after attaching a shadow DOM to an element, that element is referred to as the host. Alrighty, now that hopefully we have a good grasp on what they are, let's talk about some popular use cases for web components. Perhaps the most popular use of web components is implementing design systems where the designers in your company can finally get that write-once, run-everywhere design implementation that is independent of any UI framework. If you'd like to see a good example of such a system, you can look at Adobe's Spectrum framework. An interesting foundation for building your own design system I've found recently is Shoelace. I highly recommend you to take a look at their documentation. You can find links to both of those frameworks in the show notes. Salesforce is a good example of a company that doubled down on web components that became one of their primary tools for front-end development. If you'd like to see a cutting-edge use of web components, I recommend you to take a look at Salesforce's Lightning Web Components library. Another interesting use case is building micro frontends where a monolithic web application is broken into smaller isolated independent components. Using web components allows the development teams to have very loose coupling as they don't have to agree on common frameworks or versioning. So how big should be a single component? Well, that depends. A single component can be as big or as small as suitable for your application. You can even package a set of pages written in, let's say, React inside of one single web component. You can even use multiple different frameworks like Vue together with React on the same page with this technique, though that may not be the best idea. While I'm not aware of any critical issues when building apps using web components, there are still some disadvantages that is most worth mentioning here. If you have automated UI tests that rely on DOM tree traversals, be aware that encapsulated shadow DOM is not accessible the same way as normal DOM. Salesforce, for example, had to rewrite large part of their test suite, which was painful, according to their company's principal architect. However, he also said that it was totally worth it as their tests have become more scalable and more reliable. Another common drawback is styling. Since Shadow DOM is an encapsulated sandbox, styling these components remains somewhat hacky, or at least it feels a little bit hacky at times. Having said that, there are new specs coming up that will solve most of the styling issues, as well as techniques for sharing styles across components. I will add links in the notes to relevant reading materials for features like CSS shadow parts and constructible style sheets. If there is enough interest, I may do a separate episode on those. And lastly, older browsers like IE11 don't support the web component spec natively. Even though it can be added by using a third-party uh, polyfill, you might want to reconsider the use of web components if you are required to support IE11 or older. All right. I barely scratched the surface of web components in this introductory episode. Things like popular web component frameworks, as well as deeper dive into technical aspects of state management, rendering and styling techniques. However, I hope this introduction builds enough of a foundation for you to take it further from here. 
I will add a ton of reading materials and videos in the show notes that will help you advance your knowledge and understanding of web components. Thanks for listening to Full Stack Joe. If you have any feedback for me, shoot me an email at fullstackjoe at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.